This morning, we're going to dive back into John 19, specifically beginning with verse 23. But before we do, I just want to set the scene for you this morning. Pontius Pilate has sentenced Jesus to death. He's been led from Gabbatha, the pavement, the place of scourging and judgment, to Golgotha, the site of execution. There he's been crucified by the Romans. The cross is hoisted into the air, no doubt sending a surge of immense pain through Jesus' already ravaged body as the cross settles into its place. As Jesus adjusts to these excruciating conditions, the soldiers take the sign that had been hung around his neck and they nail it above his head. Scripted by Pontius Pilate, it simply read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The irony of such a declaration is that it further illustrated, it was further illustrated by a crown of thorns that Jesus is still wearing while hanging from the cross. If I may just take a moment and add something to our commentary we weren't able to get to in the last few Sundays. And that is the fact that there's kind of a twist. A twist in really the larger narrative of Scripture that here you have Jesus on a cross, dying for the sins of the world, the perfect Son of God. And of all things on His head, you have a crown of thorns. Not only is that somewhat ironic, poetic, but the imagery and the symbolism is not to be mistaken. You know, after the original rebellion and sin of Adam and the garden, the following curse was given to him by God. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17, 18, and 19, we're told, Then to Adam God said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now now understand, such a crown that Jesus wore as he hung on Mount Calvary would have never been possible. A crown of thorns, if it hadn't been for the original sin of mankind. According to Genesis 3, thorns themselves were never part of God's created order. Never part of the plan. In truth, thorns were yielded from the earth as a simple reminder of man's fallen condition and the ultimate curse that had resulted. It's not an accident that after stripping Jesus of all earthly possessions, Satan mockingly crowned Jesus with the thorns of man's sin. What a profound statement that Jesus... That Jesus was willing to allow himself to be crowned with thorns. You know, as you look at the cross, the thorns atop Jesus' head would serve as a stark reminder as to why he hung on that tree in the first place. It was the sin of man that Jesus was crucified for. The curse of old, he laid down his life to reverse. The very men which had become the thorn of God's creation, Jesus died to redeem. A crown of thorns. Missionary 
Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot makes an interesting observation about this particular crown, the crown of thorns, worthy of noting. She once said, quote, The only crown Jesus ever wore on earth was a crown of thorns. What an amazing thought. You know, according to Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, because Jesus came to earth and was willing to wear a crown of thorns, you and I might one day don the crown of life. Amen? From roughly 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., Jesus is left to make a terrible decision. He has to choose between pain and his cousin, more pain. For six hours, the only way that Jesus can avoid the burning torment of the nail driven through each of his wrists was by pushing himself upward, placing his entire weight on the nail driven through his teeth, no doubt tearing the nerves between the metatorsal bones. As you can imagine, each of these two options, pain and more pain, was equally agonizing. Aside from this horrific dynamic, Jesus' experience here is exacerbated even further by the inescapable cramps that quickly resulted. As Jesus' arms and legs fatigue, made worse, no doubt, by the dehydration and, and the loss of blood from the scourging, Jesus undergoes waves of wrenching cramps, sweeping through his muscles, knotting them in a deep, relentless throb. As all of this continues, as it, as it happens, it doesn't take long for Jesus to struggle. Pain in his wrists, his feet, the cramps. Jesus struggles to push himself upwards, to inhale and exhale, to breathe. As minutes turn to hours, Jesus' fight is no longer choosing between the torment of his wrists and feet. His fight is now an attempt to raise himself up just to get even a short measure of breath. In fact, a crucifixion death was often, the post-mortem, it was often caused by asphyxiation. You quit breathing. It's also worth pointing out that contrary to the typical depictions of the crucifixion scene, Jesus was likely not perched high above the onlookers. A Roman cross was instead designed to lift a prisoner no more than just a few feet in the air, keeping that person at the eye level of those around him. History says, indeed, that it wasn't abnormal for a man to die by being eaten by jackals, beasts of the field. With this in mind, the following account provided in Matthew 27 becomes all the more degrading. Imagine the scene, Jesus just a few feet in the air. You can look him in the eyes. And we're told by Matthew that those who pass by blaspheming him, wagging their heads and saying, you destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders, said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Imagine the taunting, the mockery. Jesus is right there. The presence of Jesus on the cross. Well, the other gospel writers focus on Jesus' experiences over these six hours. 
as the only disciple who was present, John, our author, it seems as though he could never shake, as he reminisced about the moment, what he witnessed happening around the cross. John, in the verses that that we'll look at this morning, focuses first on the indifference of the soldiers before recounting the grief of a group of women. Verse 23 of John 19, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took His garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Uh, More than likely, Jesus is either completely naked on the cross or He's given a small loincloth. Either way, we're told that the tunic here was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, and then John references Psalms 22, verse 18, that they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. What a terrible scene to have witnessed. Here you have the Savior of the world hanging on his cross with these Roman soldiers not only standing by oblivious, as to the significance of the moment they're witnessing, but they're occupied dividing up his earthly remains, his clothing among themselves. Historically, we know that because of the length of time that a Roman crucifixion would typically last, 13, 14 hours, if not days, a group of four soldiers were required to remain at the place of execution until the death of the prisoner to kill the monotony the boredom. John recalls how these four men take Jesus' garments. They divide them into four equal parts. That makes sense. There's four soldiers. However, because there's now a tunic remaining, a fifth article, and it would be a waste to tear it into four equal parts, they decide to cast lots for the final article of clothing. John takes the time to tell us that this particular tunic was unique. He says it's unique because it was crafted, look at the text, without seam. That's significant. Woven from the top in one piece. Now the reason that this is worthy of mention by John, kind of an odd detail to include, Jesus' tunic. The reason John adds this is that according to Exodus chapter 28, verses 21 through 32, such a seamless tunic, well, it was unique to be worn by a commoner but not unique in regards to the high priest. In fact, it was such a tunic that was specifically designed to be worn by the high priest. A seamless tunic. Again, it's not an accident that later on the book of Hebrews will again and again refer to Jesus as being what? Our high priest. The symbolism, it's all congruent. In commenting on this act of the soldiers, brazenly dividing up Jesus' garments among themselves. David Guzik writes this. He says that the act shows that Jesus came all the way down the ladder to accomplish our salvation. Jesus let go of everything. Even His last bit of clothing, becoming completely poor for us, that we might become completely rich in Him. Though it's clear that John includes this detail to illustrate how Psalms 22 was ultimately fulfilled in these actions, the insensitive actions of the soldiers. 
the overarching point of including such a detail is really to highlight the indifference of the soldiers, these pagan men, to what was happening. Oblivious. Like in a scene here, with such eternal consequences, with such gravitas, these men were more interested in earthly gains. It may also be that John adds this detail to increase the gravity of a conclusion that every one of these men would later reach concerning Jesus by the end of their experiences on this particular day. Again, in Matthew 27, we're told that Jesus, he cries out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil in the temple was torn, and two from top to bottom, the earth quaked, the rocks were split, the graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, coming out of those graves after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many so, Matthew says, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. At the beginning of their experiences, they're oblivious, casting lots for his clothing. In six hours, they're in reverence, recognizing that this was not just a mortal man. You know, for any man or woman that spends any significant time at the cross of Christ, one thing is always sure to happen. His perspective of Jesus will inevitably change. You might start as a skeptic, but the more time you spend at the cross of Jesus, the more that perspective will morph. You see, in light of his sacrifice, who would care about earthly gains? The text doesn't say this, but I reckon, my guess, is that one of these men ever wore an article of the clothing that they had divided up, yet alone that tunic. Well, verse 25, we're told there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, this would be John, our author, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, to John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. In Mark 15, verses 40 and 41, we're given an earlier list of the women at the cross with kind of a general inclusion that there were many others also present. Mark writes that there were also women looking on from afar. Among those were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph, or Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when Jesus was in Galilee, many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, as you imagine the scene at the cross, the first person I want you to picture, aside from the soldiers casting lots and different to what's happening, first consider Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mark describes her as the mother of James the Less. And Joseph, these being two of Jesus' biological half-brothers. Sadly, though, we don't have a mention of Joseph, which we should cut him some slack. Most scholars believe he's already passed away by this juncture. But we don't find any of Jesus' siblings with their mother at the cross. You know, as I think of Mary, what pain she must have been experiencing 
as she watches in horror, as her firstborn son hangs there on the cross. You know, so many years before, God had given her specific promises about his eternal destiny. She knew that Jesus had come specifically to save his people from their sins. I'm confident, though, that nothing had prepared her to witness his crucifixion. What salvation cost, Mary knew. Through tears, Mary recalled the moment the angel appeared, telling her that she had conceived the Son of God. A moment that changed her life forever. I'm sure as those who passed by the cross mocked and humiliated him, Mary remembered that still night in Bethlehem when Jesus had been born. And then the testimony of the the shepherds who had arrived at that humble manger scene. There is no question, as Mary watched Jesus struggle to breathe, she considered the day that she and Joseph had taken him, presented him in the temple, and both Simeon and Anna had bore witness that her baby boy had indeed been the promised Savior. As Mary watches her son Jesus die on the cross, I'm sure those unique gifts that had been given to him when he was a toddler by wise men from the east of gold, frankincense, and myrrh come to mind. With Mary, you also have Mary of Mary Magdalene. According to the biblical record provided in Mark 16, she came from the city of Magdala. In fact, she had become a disciple of Jesus after Jesus had graciously liberated her from the possession of seven demons who were constantly tormenting her. How helpless Mary Magdalene must have felt knowing that there was nothing she could do for the Savior who had done so much for her. But we have no other biblical information provided about Mary, the wife of Clopas, or more specifically in the Greek, Cleopas. Early church father, Hegippus, I got that out, Hegippus, as a theory, he presented or taught that Cleopas was in actuality the brother of Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, making this particular Mary Jesus' aunt and Mary's sister-in-law. It's an interesting theory, no biblical evidence for it. But if you carry it forth, this Mary had been there when Joseph, her brother-in-law, when his betrothed wife had mysteriously turned up pregnant. She was there when the rumors were flying around, when the, when the situation became tense. I'm sure she started very skeptical of the story that both Mary had given to Joseph and that Joseph had believed, claiming an angel had appeared. And yet at some point, while we're not told how, her skepticism turned to a faith as she watched young Jesus grow up. It's likely the woman John presents as his mother's sister and Mark's account of a woman named Salome are in fact the same woman. According to another early church father, Eusebius, Salome, known in Matthew 27 as Mary, was the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother, as well as, interestingly enough, the cousin of Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the, the baptizer. We don't talk about this much, but if Eusebius' claims hold true, Salome would then be the mother of the sons of Zebedee, making Jesus cousins 
with both James and his brother John, our author. Not only would this explain the deep relational connection that Jesus had with these men, including John the Baptist, and why they all seem to be kind of together when the story starts, but it then sheds more context on the motivation behind Jesus entrusting the care of his mother Mary to Mary's nephew, John. It's worth noting that this group of women, not just those we've mentioned, but just the group in general at the cross, many of them shared a relational connection with Jesus. But, but Mark goes beyond that. By describing them all as those who, quote, followed and ministered to Jesus. In the Greek, the word followed, it means to walk along the same road. And indeed, that word defines who these women had come to be. More than the mother of Jesus, more than the, uh, the aunts of Jesus, these women were genuine disciples of Christ. Each of them had encountered Jesus in their own unique way, and yet they were all willing to, lead, to follow Jesus wherever the path would lead. And it's worthy of noting that unlike Jesus' male disciples, John excluded, this group of women had no problems publicly identifying themselves with Jesus, even at the place of execution, that being Calvary. Aside from the fact that they followed Jesus, Mark also says that they ministered to him. While the first word defined who they were, the second word describes what they did. They were followers of Jesus, but they ministered to him. In the Greek, the word it literally means to serve or to wait tables. In fact, this very word in the Greek will be the word we'll find used to, to define a deacon. Same word translated. In fact, the first deacons, you might say, was this group of women. As followers of Jesus, these women disciples, they, they, they apparently they focus their time and their energy and their efforts, not just following Jesus from town to town to town, but by in each town, practically caring for the multitude of needs of his earthly ministry. According to Luke chapter 8, we're told that these women went so far as to provide for Jesus from their own substance. There is no doubt their pursuit of Jesus had led them all to an unexpected destination. No one expected the cross. Jesus had touched their lives in powerful ways. Their love for Him and desire to serve Him had been birthed as a reciprocation of His love and service to them. I'm sure their presence at the cross, as you can imagine, naturally brought Jesus amazing encouragement. He wasn't alone. This group of women were with Him. You know, in light of their, their testimony, as profound and powerful as it is, and really in contrast to the other disciples who were nowhere to be found, those who had forsaken Jesus? The question is worthy of posing. What kind of disciple are you? If you're following Jesus for selfish reasons, friend, you will inevitably choose a more convenient path when your journey with Jesus finds itself at a cross. And yet, if you're following Jesus because of who He is, and for, and for what He's done for you, if it's a reciprocation of His grace then you know, like these women, you won't only be willing to follow Him if it leads to a cross, but you know, as demonstrated by the fact that these women will be the first to experience glory, they were present for His resurrection. 
You journey to a cross, but what always comes after a cross is life and glory. This group of women see the crucifixion, but they're also there for the resurrection, the first. Now, beyond all of that, it's worth noting that while dying for the sins of the world, Jesus takes a moment, and I'm always struck by this every time I read it. He's dying for the sins of the world. He's been scourged, humiliated, mocked, scorned, lied about. You've got people walking by, continuing the humiliation and mockery. He's doing a serious, significant thing, the most important thing to ever happen on planet Earth. Jesus is in the, in the midst of accomplishing, and he takes a moment and does what? He takes care of his mother. He takes care of his mom. There he is, the firstborn. If Joseph had passed away, it's his right, his responsibility to provide and to take care for his mother. And as he's dying, and none of his brothers are present, sensing a responsibility, he entrusts her care to John. (laughs) Recalling this special moment, John tells us, he says, from that hour, that disciple himself took Mary to his own home. I got you, Jesus. I'll take care of your mom. Though I feel an inclination to stay just purely true to our exposition through John's account, it's worthy that, that you know that during the crucifixion experience, during these six long hours, Jesus will make seven statements from the cross. We're not going to expound on them, but we will mention them for the record so you understand the context by which John uh, includes some things for us. First, in the immediate moments following his crucifixion, Jesus, as Jesus would, he intercedes for the guilty. He intercedes for humanity. In the midst of all of this torment, Jesus, the very first words out of his mouth are, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, verse 34. Then at some point, an interesting exchange will occur between two thieves that had been crucified to his right and left, followed by an appeal of one of these unnamed men for Jesus to remember him when he entered his kingdom. As we noted a few Sundays ago, in response to the man's faith, Jesus will declare to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, verse 43. In harmonizing the accounts, it's likely Jesus' instructions to John here that we just read for Mary make up his third statement. Then at noon, Jesus will make his fourth declaration when he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And immediately, the gospel narratives tell us that the sky darkens. Most biblical scholars believe that it's at this point that something spiritual, mystical, supernatural takes place as Jesus literally, the man who knew no sin, became sin for us, as illustrated by the darkness that settled in the middle of the day. For six long hours, Jesus here has endured the unrelenting torment caused by cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, The struggle to breathe, the searing agony as tissue is torn 
not just from his hands and his feet, but his lacerated back as he's moving up and down the rough timber. As time progresses, Jesus' heart struggles as it pumps thick, heavy, sluggish, oxygen-deprived blood through the tissues and the organs. As his tortured lungs are making frantic efforts to keep up, to take small gulps of air, to infuse it into the blood, a crushing pain begins to rise in Jesus' chest. You see the pedicardium around the heart, it slowly begins to fill with, fill with serum. It starts to compress the, the heart. The heart's working overtime. Jesus is near death. At 3 p.m. and following three hours of darkness, Jesus can now feel this chill of death creeping throughout his body. As this darkness that's covered the earth, begins to give way to light. According to John 19, verse 28, we read that after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Aside from the practical reality that Jesus wants something to drink, so that he can muster these last two very important statements for the world to hear, the spiritual implications of these two words are profound. I thirst. Those two words coming from the mouth of Jesus continue to reinforce the idea that Jesus has undergone something he's never experienced. The effects of sin. Separation from his Father. Do you know not once in any of the gospel records before this moment do you ever find it mentioned that Jesus thirsted? Not once. In response to this request, verse 29, Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with the sour wine. They put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. And this was all normal. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, his tongue is now loosed. He musters energy to cry out with a loud voice. He says, John records, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. According to Luke 23, verse 46, between this declaration and the moment he gave up his spirit, Jesus will, for the final time, press these torn feet against the nail, straighten his legs, and take a final breath and declare, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Most notably, this tells us that Jesus didn't die. Now, I'm not splitting hairs here, but the gospel record. It says that Jesus' life was given and committed to his Father. It wasn't taken from him. It was laid down by him. Additionally, there's, there's kind of as you examine these seven statements, Jesus' use here at the end of the word Father. You know, his first statement was what? Father, forgive them. Then in the middle of all of this, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sky turns to darkness. And yet now, here at the end, when Jesus, knowing everything was accomplished, when he's declared, it is finished, he then returns back to using this word Father. You see, his relationship with God has now been accepted 
his relationship restored, his work completed. Immediately following the passing, following Jesus' passing, the gospel narrative records a series of supernatural events taking place in Jerusalem. We read them earlier, I'll just recap them. We're told that Jesus dies, he breathes his last, he commits his spirit, and there's a great earthquake that rattles the city. The veil in the temple, it's torn from top to bottom. Graves are opened. Amazing things. As witnesses to these things, uh, the centurion, seeing Jesus breathe his last, witnessing this, he declares this man was surely the Son of God. In closing, I want to return your attention to the implications and the timing of this statement Jesus makes. This declarative statement, it is finished. In the original language, these three English words are in fact one Greek word, tetelestai. Now first, keep in mind that this was a common cultural phrase in Greek literature. Very broadly, tetelestai means to bring to close. Economically, the word signified that an account that had been delinquent, had been restored. It had been paid in full, satisfied. Legally, the word tetelestai had implications as well. In fact, when a prisoner had completed his sentence, whatever sentence had been doled out by the judge, as soon as it was completed, finished, the prisoner would be released. On the cell, a sign would be posted. Debt completed. Tetelestai. This word, the word itself, specifically the way that Jesus uses it, we find it in the perfect tense. It is finished, a literal reading of Tetelestai, would be it is finished, it has been finished, it will always be finished. There is no mistaking the permanent ramifications of Jesus crying out from the cross, Tetelestai, this singular word. In order to fully comprehend what is happening in this moment, and more importantly, its significance, it would be helpful if you first defined the word it. It is finished. What had Jesus actually finished? You see, the work of Jesus on the cross, the work He completed, It was the work of redemption. Through His sacrifice, Jesus once and for all satisfied the price for sin so that you and I might be forgiven. You see, following Jesus' crucifixion, nothing else was required for your salvation, nor ever would be. His work was enough. It's finished. It's complete. Oswald Chambers, famous for his devotional, utmost for the highest, he writes this. He says, Never build your case for forgiveness on the idea that God is your Father and He will forgive you because He loves you. That contradicts the revealed truth of God in Jesus Christ. It makes the cross unnecessary. God forgives sin only because of the death of Christ. God could forgive people no other way than by the death of His Son 
and Jesus is exalted as Savior because of his death. The greatest note of triumph ever sounded in the ears of a startled universe was that sound on the cross of Christ. It is finished. That is the final word and the redemption of mankind. What immediately happens when Jesus makes this declaration, it helps us come to terms with its implications. Mark tells us that when Jesus cries out to Telestai, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that's an incredible feat in and of itself. Josephus, first century Jewish historian, very familiar with these things, he tells us that this veil, it was 80 feet high. Imagine that. And not just 80 feet high, it was woven 10 inches thick. Now the reason for such a massive veil was that it had a particular function. It divided the temple into two sections, specifically keeping the Holy of Holies private and the presence of God concealed. Most interestingly, the design did not intend to protect God from man. The veil was crafted to protect man from God. You see, the veil shielded sinful humanity from the righteous wrath of God, His holiness. Because of sin, mankind had been permanently separated from a holy God. And the veil, it represented this separation. In fact, only one time a year was any human being ever allowed to go on the other side of the veil and enter the Holy of Holies. And that was just the high priest. In fact, it was such a risky proposition that if the high priest was found unclean in any way, if there was any sin at all that had not been confessed or sacrificed, repented for, he would be struck dead upon entering the Holy of Holies. Truth, they would attach along the bottom tassels of the high priest bells and a rope to his ankle. Because if the high priest went in and you no longer heard the bells, well, we need to pull out. We caught us a big one. You had to have the rope because if he croaked dead in the Holy of Holies, who was going to go get him? No one. This was a serious business, a serious thing. Only on the Day of Atonement could the high priest enter. And if he was found to be sinful, he'd be struck dead on the spot. With that in mind, with that context, I want you to think of yourself for just a minute as a priest. On this day, you're exhausted. This has been Passover week, right? The preparations, the sacrifices. You're in the temple, right? It's 3 p.m. The last batch of Passover lambs are being slaughtered. You're about your work. Then, unexpectedly, without any type of warning, this loud, tearing noise begins encompassing the precincts. The building is rattling. 
Now, there's an initial confusion. What's happening? You've never heard such a sound in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, in this special place. That confusion, though, quickly turns to horror. As you identify where the tearing's coming from, you look up and you see this veil. A tear beginning at the top, now working its way down to the bottom. Because of the size of the veil, (laughs) there's no doubt, no question, that what is happening is a supernatural occurrence. No mortal man had the strength to tear a veil of that size. And if you were to try, logically, you would begin at the bottom, not the top. As these priests are in the room witnessing the, the tear grow larger, they recognize that it's God. That God is tearing down a veil and He's about to open His throne room to all. (laughs) Again, just the nature of what would happen if you were in sin and you went behind the veil. As as things are are beginning to make their way down, I see the priest diving for cover. As the, the tear reaches the floor, And that final thread, that final piece separates. This room that had been concealed from all of humanity since the days of the tabernacle for the first time comes into view. Again, you've been a priest all your life. Not the high priest. You've only imagined what the Holy of Holies looked like. You've only imagined what was beyond the veil. You'd never seen it. In all your years, you'd never witnessed it. And yet there in front of you, you can now peer into the holiest of holies. And not just you, but anyone east can look through now into the temple, through the veil, and see the altar. When Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished, to telestai, when the payment for sin was finally and permanently satisfied, any man could approach God. A work was completed giving access where access had never been granted before. And this is illustrated by the tearing of such a veil. You know, in that moment, once the veil was torn... If you understood the significance of what had occurred, the activities of the temple should have immediately ceased forever. Once the veil was torn, it was over. It's finished. No more sacrifices should have ever happened. And yet what does religion do? It stitched back up the veil, went back forth like nothing had ever happened. You see... When the veil was torn, there was nothing else that humanity needed to ever do. No sacrifice humanity should ever ever offer. Nothing ever required. You see, once the veil was torn and Jesus cried out, It is finished, no work of man would ever be necessary. It is finished. It has been finished. It will always be finished. In Jesus and His work on the cross, 
your debt for your sin, past, present, and future, has been paid in full. And commenting on the tearing of the veil, famous preacher Charles Spurgeon, he said, and I'll close with this, the perfect satisfaction of the Father with Christ's work for His people so that Christ could say it is finished is a ground of solid comfort to His church forevermore. Dear friends, once more, take comfort from this. It is finished. For the redemption of Christ's church is perfected. There is not another penny to be paid for your full release. There is no mortgage upon Christ's inheritance. Those whom He bought with blood are forever clear of all charges. Paid for to the utmost. There was a handwriting of ordinances against you, but Christ has taken it away. He has nailed it to His cross. It is finished, finished forever. All those overwhelming debts which would have sunk you to the lowest hell have been discharged, and they who believe in Christ may appear with boldness even before the throne of God itself. It is finished. What comfort there is in this glorious truth of God. And yet how often do we not believe it's finished through our actions? Satan beats his condemnation drum because you think you're not good enough. I'm not doing enough. And Jesus is crying out, it's done. It's finished. There's nothing you can add, nothing you can take away. Enjoy it. The debt's been cleared. Your wage is satisfied. What more can you add to a work that's completed? As a matter of fact, it's only an insult to try. That's why Paul writes as passionately as he does in Galatians about the evils of legalism. Man's attempt to add something to a work that's done. It's not just insulting. It's meaningless. It's pointless. It's as silly as stitching back up the veil. Going back to offering your sacrifices. When all that God asked is finished. So Father, may we take great joy in that concept.